This is the Truth About Investing Back to Basics podcast, where we want to help you take control of your personal finance and long-term investments. If you're looking for a way to learn the why and how of investing, then you've found the right place. Thank you for taking the time to learn how to better yourselves. Checking, yeah. checking. One, two, three. I think we need to work on your French. I. <laughs> <laughs> Eins, zwei. Is that the, <laughs> the French? And then jump over to German, with? huh? Yeah. Right. Now right. my mom would be very disappointed, and she her French isn't even that good anymore. <laughs> well, as long as as long as she can be. Uh, disappointed for my not even elementary level French. <laughs> what is that? Cat sinks set wait noof dies. That's it. That's all I got. I'm out. I'm out of ons. I ain't. <laughs> no. There it goes again. Did you uh, jump back to German again? I did. Or I were did. you in German ons, the whole time? Ons, ons? Ons? Yeah, you were. Well, that's, oh, that's that's what happened. Is I was gonna say ons, and then I went eins. So it, it's whatever. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> uh, How well, little uh, foreign language we really know or speak. It's well, I mean, the, we what I know the that. best is sign language, and that's not exactly something I can demonstrate on a podcast. <laughs> 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 no, go ahead, Chris. It'll be really entertaining for everyone. Okay. Okay. Here, here. I'm, I'll I'll sign to you. I, I signed. Nice job, nice job. Thank that you. Was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. I asked how you are. By the way, <laughs> oh, I know I know you couldn't I'm, tell that because you don't good. understand sign I'm language. I'm even better now. Oh, that's why I couldn't yeah, that's tell. That's why you couldn't <laughs> understand that. Yeah, that's what happened. Okay, uh, whatever. We should introduce things. Welcome back, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, uh, to the truth about investing. Back to basics, not how to learn a foreign language. Um, Clearly. <laughs> my, my name is Chris Holling. <laughs> and I'm Sean Cooper. And today we are going to talk about alternative investments. Right, Sean? Indeed. Okay. He had to correct me because I put little notes on how to remember that we're talking about alternative investments on here. And he said, no, that's not all we're talking about. So, <laughs> so Chris uh, just wants to talk about gold and silver. I do. I want to talk about the metals and, uh, and, and aluminum. Should we invest in aluminum? <laughs> aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> Not among the precious metals that most people would buy into, but <laughs> it's a you know certainly an industry you could buy into, I suppose. Well, maybe not a bunch of people are into it yet, is what I think. That's what it is. That could be. A trendsetter. It is a unique metal, that is for sure. <laughs> well, okay. So I, I know that it'll fit in there because uh, I, 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 am, I am interested to to learn a little bit more about that but like where where does that land do we do we open up with some some precious metals perhaps well i was thinking maybe we should you know discuss why we're talking about alternatives in the first place kind of tied into some of our prior episodes okay um, specifically we're talking about alternatives because of that diversification that we've been talking about in the past and the correlation so adding in alternative investments to the portfolio 
can help enhance the portfolio in a number of different ways, either in improving return or reducing risk or some combination of those two, but really allowing you to tailor the portfolio to your risk and reward profile based on your you know risk tolerance, financial ability to assume risk, that sort of thing. Because strictly sticking to stocks and bonds really doesn't provide the same diversification benefits that it used to when modern portfolio theory originally was devised. Okay. So, so yeah, I was going to basically present some of the alternative investments that are available out there and discuss why they can potentially help a portfolio or where they might fit in. Well, I have, I have a question about that, and maybe, maybe this yeah. is me kind of jumping ahead uh maybe not but uh when when we were looking at these the the alternative investments that you have not listed yet is there a point when you start to say now is the time to start considering these things as opposed to the the stocks and bonds stretch like you're referring to or is it more of a uh fluid option than that like uh, i don't know if i asked that very well no, that no. It's a good question. Um, assuming I understand what you're getting at, is there a time to get in or get out of alternative investments? And my answer to that is, if there was, if you somehow have a uh, magical bell that goes off to tell you when the market's going to tank, then yes, there would be a time to get in and out of alternative investments. Realistically, yeah, yeah, you and me both. Yeah. Realistically, if there was somebody who actually knew when that was going to happen uh, consistently I should say even if they knew it once they'd be very wealthy uh, you look at uh, the big short if you've ever seen that movie or read the story um, I haven't the, but it sounds like it's time to the original person who basically predicted 2008 oh, okay. um, yeah and he was wrong for months and he nearly lost everything in the process. And then he, when it did happen and he proved to be right, he made tons and tons of money for himself and his clients. Wow. Okay. And that's because he predicted it once. Right. Could he do it again? Eh, maybe, maybe not. Because the cause for market crashes varies each time. Sure. Now, there are some some commonalities, but the, the overarching cause and what like he predicted in 2008 is not the same. So actually being able to see the entire market and go, okay, this is going to be the cause and this is when it's going to happen. Cause even he didn't get it right in terms of exactly when it was going to happen. Like I said, he almost lost everything waiting yeah. for it to actually happen. So, um, well, and part of that's because when you have things like, Oh seven oh eight occur, then new things get placed, uh, new things get put in place to help avoid that from happening. Again, <laughs> is the point? Oh, you brought on a whole another topic there. Uh, well, I, You're talking I, about I, government regulation that didn't work <laughs> to begin with, and they made worse in their. Pro oh, that's a that's another topic that we really need to discuss because that. We, oh man. <laughs> We can we can have a different episode. That one I'm it. a little fiery about. I, I I was mostly just addressing that when you are going, oh this this could happen again, even if things get shuffled around and you're just you know robbing Peter to pay Paul to to fix something else, 
it's still not likely for that crash to happen for the same reason because new things hint, are in hint, place. They didn't fix anything. Well, <laughs> Shut up. That's a different it's a different episode, Sean. <laughs> Or it's about to be. I have to. I have to put it in here. I'm gonna, yeah, you do need I'm to put enter that in. There. It in. Um, yeah, yeah. Here I go. I'm gonna enter it in now. No, the, but my point is the cause of market crashes vary. I mean, look at 2008 versus 2001. Tech had nothing to do with 2008, but it was everything to do with 2001. That was a right. tech bubble. Right. Whereas 2007, 2008 was the mortgage crisis. Correct. Okay. I just So completely different things that actually caused the crashes. We know there's going to be crashes. That's it's going to happen. They'd like to pretend they they can avoid it. Realistically, I think they're going to make them worse. <laughs> Probably. But it's it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when and why. So my my point being in all this, I don't think anybody is going to consistently predict each and every market crash when and why it's going to happen right so trying to get into or out of alternative investments at a particular time is going to be very very difficult if not impossible so my point is you should probably add in alternative investments to your portfolio permanently to some degree okay that makes sense I could see that. Okay. Uh, and if we use 2008 as an example, many people assume that in 2008, everything went down because most people lost lots and lots of money in 2008. We're talking about the market going down. I think the worst point was like 39%, um, something along those lines. Most people, it was you know, closer to you know, 30, 35% that they may have lost in their portfolios, especially on the equity side. But in that time, bonds, for the most part, also lost money. And so people just assume that in 2008, everything lost money. And that's not true. And that is, I think, the easiest illustration of why alternative investments can be advantageous. So you have some, pretty much the only traditional asset classes that even broke even in 2008 that most people had access to would have been like the uh, uh, Bar- Barclays aggregate bond uh, index. So I'm just using kind of uh, broad asset classes here. Um, foreign corporate bonds actually basically broke even. The only thing that most people probably were invested in or had access to that did that actually had a positive rate of return in 2008 would have been uh, long-term treasuries. Oh, okay. Like, uh, so, I, what? Do, when you say treasuries, plural, like, do you do you have an example of of some treasuries or just treasuries? Uh, treasuries meaning U.S. treasuries bonds. Okay. Okay. Notes. Sorry, I, I thought that's what you meant. I just yeah, I, I didn't yeah, know yeah, if yeah. there was some uh, Walmart treasury. I, I, I <laughs> no, I no. Okay. Nope. Uh, in fact. Um, yeah, uh, corporate bonds, U.S. corporate bonds really didn't do very well. High yield bonds really got hurt. So, um, okay. yeah, but that's where the alternatives come into play. And see, uh, when you talk about alternatives, some people might dabble and they would consider like real estate an alternative asset class. And I would agree that is an alternative asset class 
it is among the alternative asset classes that did really, really poorly in 2008 because it was a mortgage crisis. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. However, things like gold, silver, private equity, uh, if you invested in volatility, and managed futures, which are other alternatives, all did really well in 2008. Okay. But most people were not invested in those things. And that's why having those mixed into your portfolio can you know, enhance returns or reduce mitigate risk. Uh, do you want me just to start jumping into some of these and we can talk yeah. about them? Yeah, well, I mean, sure. I, 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 when, when, I think, when I think of an alternate investment uh, or alternative, alternative investment, uh, really, I, I, I jump to precious metals. And I, I imagine a lot of okay. other people do as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not trying to continue to go back and, and harp on it. I really was just giving you a hard time about it. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't mind starting there. No, I, I just think that that's, that's something that's commonly known as an option that's readily available to people and and towards the top of their minds like when you referred to right. the uh the first set of bonds that did well in the in the 0708 stretch i was like yeah sure that that bond <laughs> of course everybody everybody knows about that bond <laughs> like, so so i i you know as far as like ground level stuff i would think like yeah yeah this this is stuff that is almost in common conversation that is an alternative investment that that you could consider and here's why and and then past that point like i, I think it's mm-hmm. all noteworthy so yeah let, yeah um so yeah but before i jump into the metals let me actually make it a, a quick distinction here um when looking at alternative investments i divide them into two subcategories. So alternative assets and alternative strategies. So alternative assets would be things like hard assets, things you can physically see, touch, smell, that sort of thing. Alternative strategies being unique investment methodologies. Do you, so, do you smell your metals? Uh, I mean, if not you can touch intentionally. It, you can it, like, do you, I mean, you just... You said if you can see it and you smell it and touch it, and I, I just wondered if you got a hold of your metals and smelled them. No, I'm not Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start smelling my metals. Sorry. You should. Continue. You should. Okay, so alternative assets, the things you can see, touch. I guess you could taste them and smell them if you want. <laughs> I, I use those or I view those as alternatives to equities, because they tend to be higher risk and higher reward. So they tend to perform like equities, but non-correlated, so potentially can enhance the portfolio. Whereas alternative strategies tend to have risk and reward profiles more similar to uh, fixed income, bonds. And so I use them as bond alternatives. So I break those two categories out. So addressing the alternative assets, we have your... Uh, metals, uh, real estate, global natural resources, and private equity, basically. So jumping into the the metals, the ones most people know and are aware of are gold and silver. You can also invest in things like platinum, palladium, copper. I I guess you could probably invest in aluminum. Aluminium. I guarantee there's a futures market for it. (laughs) I, I just don't know many people that do. 
Yeah, not yet. Yeah. Um, the, there's a couple things to be aware of. Think people tend to refer to gold as a, a safe investment and uh, silver maybe to a lesser extent. The, the truth is gold as an asset class, it, the price of gold is actually more volatile than the S&P 500. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I, I would not classify it as safe. A hedge, yes, because gold traditionally has done well against inflation. It's done well against, uh, uh, well, inflation to a lesser extent. It's kind of matched inflation, but it, it's done very well in uh, bear markets, market crashes. People tend to revert to gold when they are uh, fearful of the, the general market, so stocks. So Additionally, I- it, it's worked well as a hedge against um or people view it as a hedge against issues with the U.S. dollar. If you're investing in, if you're, you know, live in the U.S. and you're using the U.S. dollar predominantly. Well, and I might be getting ahead of myself here, but when you're when you're talking about that and you're comparing it to to a hedge, then say say I am that magical person uh, that that does know that the crash is happening tomorrow. Uh, yes. Then. The gold would sit as a better hedge overall for that crash in particular, as opposed to the S and P comparatively. But overall, if it if you're looking at like a uh, you know let's say a ten to thirty year range, if you sat on the S and P and then you then you rode that crash, it would probably do better than the gold long term. Is that is that what I'm understanding? Yeah, for, yeah, okay. more or less. I okay. mean. Yeah, if you have that magic bell, then you should probably just short the S and P five hundred and forget investing in gold in the first place. But dang it, um, you're so smart. <laughs> but yes, uh, gold would be beneficial for that crash. Long term rate of return on gold is not going to uh, most likely beat the S and P five hundred if you just buy and hold. Okay, but again, that's why it's designed as a piece of the pie to smooth out that ride over time. Okay. Same scenario with silver, but to a lesser extent. And so in theory, you aren't smart enough to short something because we're talking about me instead. And, well, not smart enough to short the, never mind. Anyways, uh, so <laughs> I, I hedge it with the gold, this this crash that I'm foreseeing. And then because I hedged it, I I survived that crash significantly better than others might, and then now that the S and P has dropped, then I use my hedge to purchase S and P while it's low. Uh, yeah, the easiest way to go about doing that without having a magic bell would to be to practice uh, periodic rebalancing. So, gotcha. if you say I'm going to put seventy uh, percent in traditional asset classes, thirty percent in alternative asset classes, I bring that up because that's how I traditionally do it most people okay. are more like 90 percent traditional 10 percent alternative and that's oftentimes because they're not familiar enough with alternatives uh back offices are scary of alternatives even though the math works out to be much better for the investor the other way but anyway okay. um that aside say it's so say you're the tr- traditional investor and you're 90 10 90 percent traditional traditional asset classes, 10% alternatives. So you've got, and we'll just use the S&P 500 in gold for the example, 90% in the S&P 500, 10% in gold. I'm not advocating that portfolio for reference. Right. right. Okay. I got you. Um, as the market does well, 
over time, your portfolio is going to get to a point most likely where you're looking at more like 95% S&P 500, 5% gold, just because the S&P 500 has outpaced the gold. If you okay. rebalance periodically, you rebalance to that 90-10. So you end up automatic. It forces you to sell some of the S&P 500 when it's high and buy some of the gold when it's low. And then as the market corrects and you know we have those those corrections, all of a sudden we get that, that swing and the S&P 500 does really poorly the, and gold outpaces. So your portfolio is now 80% S&P 500 and 20% gold. So you rebalance again and it forces you to buy, sell gold when it's up and buy S&P 500 when it's down. So no magic bell, just rebalancing forces you to do what you should already be doing instead gotcha. of what most people default to doing which is the opposite and then from a professional standpoint from your side i understand your your 70 percent traditional 30 percent alternative approach that you prefer right did i say that right yes um do you do that across the board for like all of the different realms that you offer when you're when you're offering like non-qualified accounts and and etc or do you when somebody contacts you uh for your business is it hey i uh, <laughs> do stuff do, hey sean do magic with my with my money uh, do, do you do that 70 30 as a whole overall or is it only to certain accounts that that you offer where i'm, I'm just i don't even know if i'm going to keep this i'm just curious <laughs> like, no that's okay yeah um so it would have nothing to do with the type of account, whether it's qualified or non-qualified. Okay. But to answer your overall question, yes, I blanket all accounts end up roughly that 70-30. What, what differs is the blend of the, the assets. So uh, I mentioned earlier that idea of the alternative assets versus alternative strategies and them being similar to equity versus similar to bonds. So a more aggressive portfolio is going to have a much larger percentage of, the, of that 30%, a larger percentage is going to be in alternative assets and a smaller percentage in alternative strategies, whereas a more conservative portfolio will have a smaller percent in alternative assets and a larger percent in alternative strategies. Okay. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Yep. No, good question. Oh, I guess we should cover how to invest in uh, metals. Oh, right. Regardless yeah. of the how type do I do of, that, of metal that you're you're buying. So there's a number of ways to do it. The first would be to utilize a, a fund. So a mutual fund, an exchange traded fund, that would be the easiest way to go about it. Uh, you're going to get access to the what the market deems as the, the price, if you will, uh, or more specifically, how the fund is performing, because it, it's not a perfect tie there. Uh, so Investing in the fund is the easiest methodology. It, of the methodologies that we'll discuss, it probably gives you the least amount of diversification because it's not a perfect tie to the, the price of the underlying metal. But what now, if you just want to feel like a pirate? So you prefer the coins, you know? We'll, we'll get to that. Um, I will say... Um, Those are my coins for reference. Damn it, pirate. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Um... <laughs> Yar, we be investing in the best way that we can. Yeah. The, in, when you invest in the funds, there are different types of funds that do it. And I tend to prefer the ones that actually hold physical bullion. 
So they actually, for everybody that invests in their fund, they actually go out and buy the bullion. You don't hold it personally, they hold it themselves, but at least there is physical bullion backing your investment, whereas a lot of them do not. So you're just hypothetically investing in it. Interesting. Okay. I mean, yeah. It makes sense. And they I may just use never leverage and a variety that. of other things. They, oftentimes it's going to be futures and things of that nature. So that's something to be to consider, especially if you're using it as a hedge. The closer you can get to the physical bullion, the better. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Which brings me to the next, which would be to uh, invest it in your portfolio and then have someone else hold it for you if you don't want it to be at your You don't want it to be shipped to you. You don't want to hold on to it. There are different banks and stuff that will actually hold it for you. Uh, Many IRAs, they have a a system where where they'll set it up and they set up basically a lockbox that you don't actually know where it is or hold or have anything to do with, but it's technically there for you representing what you hold. So that would be a step closer. And then the last would be you actually buying the physical bullion and holding it yourself or depositing it into a bank near you and as i said as far as a hedge is concerned the closer you can get to the physical bullion the more it acts as an actual hedge because you're dealing with the the true price of the bullion not what the market does because if you look at things like 2008 again even though uh, gold did well so did silver in 2008 the funds that represented gold and silver did not do as well as the precious metal itself because people tend to panic and they sell everything all at once regardless of its underlying value so even if the the mutual fund or etf that you invested in for gold and silver even though the underlying asset class the underlying commodity did well the price of it did well your value did well the price of the the ETF or the mutual fund did not do as well because people panicked and sold it even regardless. So, right. Does that, that make sense. sense? Okay. No, it does. It does. I, I was I was totally just jingling coins at you just because I thought it was funny. But I, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, well, this is still back from when I sold that truck for silver right. coins, and I was just like, oh, I guess I'll hang on to these and I, I, st- I still feel like a pirate every time I open this drawer <laughs> it just sits there but yep I mean yeah, yeah and there's lots of ways you can invest in like silver for example you've got the uh, pre what is 1986 yeah uh, silver About. dollars that were actually 90% silver mm-hmm. and then you've got actual you know coins or uh yeah, you can get little silver bars too. Bars, like yeah, or bars, yeah. The, exactly. I mean, they're they're so. itty bitty. They're like one ounce or whatever. But and then you can get in the the, the debate of do you want you know just U.S. Uh, minted silver and gold, which is going to be sold at a premium, but it's the only one the U.S. government will te- technically accept, or are you mm. comfortable buying, you know, Canadian maple leaves or Australian? Uh, uh, I just, I just want to, uh, I just want to get anyway. to the Ron Swanson stage. Is all I want. Just, uh, how much money do you have? I, I don't, I can tell you how many pounds of money I have. <laughs> <laughs> if you have pounds, pounds of gold, you're, <laughs> you're sitting pretty happy right now. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Does that, does that, that sate your, your desire to discuss bullion i i I think so mostly 
uh, mostly. Yeah, it does because I, you know, I that was something I considered as a as a is it is it best to you know oh I I'm going out and I'm getting a hold of this in in my hands or somebody is representing this for me too and uh, it, I I think it covers a lot of spots so that's that's good. Cool. Um, All right. So uh, another alternative asset. We talked about real estate. Um, I would argue it's becoming more and more traditional. Um, however, it does still offer some uh, diversification, lower correlation to your traditional asset classes. And there's lots of ways, again, you can invest in it, be it uh, you know REITs, real estate investment trusts, or directly buying into it and then you know being a landlord or something along those lines. So, And then you've got the difference between uh, commercial real estate and residential real estate and the different rents associated with those or whether you're going to be, a, you know, you can be a fix and flipper. Um, there's all sorts of different ways to invest in real estate, uh, but it does tend to perform a little bit different than the rest of the market with the exception of, you know, periods like 2008 where it was part of the cause of the crash. So, Well, and I, I might be splitting hairs here, but I would, I would think that the corporate real estate, unless you're commercial you're really sorry thank you commercial yep. um unless you're really fronting the, the the entire process of all of that that tends to fall more into a traditional thing like you're talking about because it's several shares of a like a conglomerate all coming together to to put that together uh, uh, for commercial real estate unless you have a very substantial uh, portfolio you're most likely going to do it through a REIT so a real estate investment trust Yes, which is, I, yep, okay. <laughs> I was just mostly saying that it seemed more traditional for, to me, to be involved in something like that, like a trust or something like that, as opposed to mm. alternative. But I, 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 I'm splitting hairs, maybe, possibly. Uh, maybe it. I, I guess it's going to depend on the the period because. Uh, yes, if the market crashes and businesses do poorly, then they're more likely to vacate their their commercial real estate, and then you lose the rent. So yes, I could I could certainly see that. Um, but then there's also the the trickle down effect of renters that um, you know if they lose their job and their ability to pay their rent. So it, it you know it it all kind of ties together eventually. It's just a matter of at what level so yeah that makes yeah. sense the, the the renting tends to be fairly resilient people still want a place to do business people still want a place to uh, live so right yeah i mean it, it all makes sense i was i think the numbers were all weird in my head so I'd, no yep. I, I can i can see where you're coming from though absolutely uh, moving on from there, uh, we've got global natural resources, and I- I'm just going through some of the ones that I tend to focus in on. There are other alternative assets, other alternative strategies, but we're, we'll just go through the ones that I tend to focus in on. So global okay. natural resources would be another. So you're looking at, um, you know, technically speaking, your bullion is a global natural resource, but in this I'm looking more at things like uh, timber, um, oil and gas, uh, your um, rare earths that they use in, you know, batteries, cell phones, solar panels, anything along those lines. So, and, sure, yeah. you know, you can focus in and do renewables versus non-renewables and, you know, go down one of those paths, uh, what have you. But all of these 
again, they they have ties to your traditional asset classes. Certainly, you know, you look at uh, timber, for example. The That's got to be demand, doing well right now. It has to be. Uh, it's actually starting to decline right now. It was doing really well earlier. Uh, I mean, prices were absolutely insane for timber earlier in this year. They, they still are, but uh, the prices at the... Um, they're they're starting to struggle because a lot of the timber industry has gotten bloated off of the the high prices they got previously. So gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. But uh, what I was getting at is, you know, if the demand for housing or construction and things of that nature goes down, then obviously timber suffers so that does have some ties to the market but for general purposes people still building stuff um so there it it offers again some level of diversification depending on what natural resource you're getting into right uh last one would be private equity and although you know technically speaking you uh it, it doesn't fit the see feel touch uh, perspective quite as well, but it, it still falls into that category. So private equity would be anything that's not publicly traded, any you know companies that are not publicly traded. So it's not your traditional equity class. Um, they haven't gone public yet. They haven't done an IPO, initial public offering, uh, and they're they tend to be very closely held. Um, it gets back into that what we talked about previously with Chris and his venture capitalist uh, Hello. experience. Yes. <laughs> so private equity, equity, we're either dealing with startups, uh, very new businesses that are trying to get going or uh, businesses still fairly early stage, but they're trying to grow. They haven't gone public yet. These ventures tend to be much higher risk, but also higher potential reward. So higher chance that they completely go belly up and you get nothing back but higher chance that they give you a much higher return on investment and so you look at um again i bring up 2008 because it's our our most recent example of how this might look maybe i started this the wrong way but most investors as i talked about maybe 90 percent traditional asset classes maybe 10 percent alternatives if they have any alternatives in their portfolio at all and it's probably real estate if they do but you look at the big endowments like the Yale and Harvard endowment and going into 2008 60 percent of their portfolio was in private equity that one asset class and it's varied since then it's gone up I think as high as like 80 percent or or more um and but for the most part it doesn't really go much below that 60% mark. So they have very high amounts invested in private equity. The issue with private equity, aside from its high risk, is it also tends to be very illiquid, meaning you buy into a company, there aren't going to be a lot of other people that will buy you out of that company down the road until they go public or until they have some kind of large liquidity event where they they sell the entire company or something along those lines. So it it tends to be very illiquid unless you get into funds that invest in private equity. But the advantage being, again, that the potential for high returns, but also its diversification benefits. So in 2000, 
eight when everybody else was losing their shirts, Yale and Harvard, their endowments made lots of money. And that was because of their investments in private equity. Why? Because in 2008, a lot of the things that lost money from a valuation standpoint did just fine. The only reason they lost money in 2008 was because people panicked and made irrational decisions. Now, there is some trickle-down, obviously, that uh, those investments, the underlying value did suffer to a degree, but not to the degree that people made it look like from the investment standpoint because of their panic selling. So private equity was largely immune to to that because your uh, average investor who panicked wasn't invested in private equity, so it didn't tank the way everything else did. Those private firms actually did just fine in 2008. Now, take that another year forward, 2009, and eventually the markets did catch up to those private equity investments, and they hurt suffered in 2009 so they lost money in 2009 when the general market was doing really really well but again that just lends credence to the idea of investing in multiple of these asset classes to try to smooth out the ride yeah that makes sense okay cool and then Uh, i I guess i was trying to think if there's like a uh (laughs) i was gonna say a layman's person but really like uh, a Chris's person's version of a uh, a private equity that might be that might be common conversation, like how how we were saying earlier. Right. Oh well, gold and silver is common conversation. What what would a common right, conversation right. private equity be? Uh, typically, you're going to be looking at again mutual funds. Uh, there are some ETFs out there, but I don't think they do a great job of tracking the private equity market um there are some decent ones there are some decent ones okay um it it just becomes a little more challenging the issue with so i i still think private equity even in mutual fund or etf form provides some diversification benefits the issue is because you know on the plus side they add liquidity you can get in and out of those mutual funds and etfs Uh, more or less as you please. Some of them do have lockups, but for the most part, you can get in and out whenever you please. The issue is that liquidity also allows for that panic selling, buying and selling that we saw in 2008. So it it tends to perform, those investments tend to perform more like the general market. Um, There are still some diversification benefits there though. To truly benefit, again, it works like the gold and silver. The closer you can get to the actual investment itself, the more the diversification benefits work. So, But obviously, the more illiquid they become. So as you work your way closer, the next step would be an actual hedge fund. The issue with investing in an actual hedge fund is most of them have minimum investments of, say, $100,000. Plus, you have to be an accredited investor, which means either having some kind of – designation like what I have, or uh, I think you have to have like uh, $5 million, a net worth of like $5 million or have made, uh, maybe it's a million. It might just be a million. I I need to look. Oh, just, just Um, a million. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. Well, or have made, (laughs) I think, uh, 250,000. I should look this up because I think they might've changed it. uh, The requirements for a credit investor. All right, net net worth over a million dollars 
or uh, income of over 200000 as an individual, 300000 uh, for joint for the prior two years and a reasonable expectation of making that in the future. So otherwise, you probably can't invest in the hedge fund anyway. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, next level down would be direct investment in private equity. So actually you know, becoming like a, a venture capitalist and going out and buying into a new company or a, a company that's still fairly early in the phase that hasn't gone public yet. So you're actually, you know, giving them your money. They're taking and uh, investing in the growth of the company and you're hoping to get your, uh, you, you know, you become an owner of the company and you're hoping to get a payout from that eventually. Sure. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, that covers the alternative assets that I wanted to go over. Any questions on those? No, I, I think that that went pretty well, actually. Cool. Then let's talk about alternative strategies, which, like I said, are more akin to your fixed income side of your portfolio. You know, a little less volatility, uh, with one exception, um, and a typically speaking, a little bit lower rate of return. So these are instead of uh, being you know, hard assets for the most part, they are unique investment methodologies. So they may still buy into stocks and bonds, but in uh, different ways. So an example of that would be uh, merger arbitrage. So arbitrage is probably something we should have defined previously if we haven't already. Um, oh, but- wait, no, that's that's where I come in. Hold on. <clears throat> okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, arbitrage. Did I spell that right? A-R-B-I-T-R-A-T. Oh, I totally spelled that right. Nice. Look at me. That's 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 awesome. <clears throat> arbitrage is the simultaneous purchase and sale of the same asset in different markets in order to profit from tiny differences in the asset's listed price. It exploits short-lived variations in the price of identical or similar financial instruments in different markets or in different forms. Did, yeah. that, did that do it? Yeah, that or? would be the strict form of arbitrage, the, the true form of arbitrage. Sweet. Uh, arbitrage in its most, uh, oh, what's the word for it? I don't know. I did my part. Most, most pure form <laughs> is, involves zero risk. Oh, so, okay. uh, like you said, you're, this place over here is selling something for, say, $49, and this place over here is buying it for $50. So you jump in as the middleman and go, yeah, I'll buy from you for 49 and sell to this guy for 50 I've seen and some make, couponers the do the same thing. Those extreme, extreme couponers are just extreme arbitrage. Right, right. So for the (laughs) most part, arbitrage in that pure form does not exist anymore. It has largely gone away due to the technology that we deal with in the investment markets. Those those price discrepancies basically no longer exist. If they do exist, we're talking about hundredths of a second that only the most powerful computers can really take advantage of. Wow. So for the most part, that doesn't happen. Most people use arbitrage a lot more liberally at this point and deal with things that can generally 
provide a lower risk return, not riskless, but lower risk. So when we're talking about merger arbitrage, we're dealing with the fact that uh, the majority of the time, the purchaser in a merger, so the, the company doing the acquisition, the buying, tends to perform poorly initially, because oftentimes they are overpaying, and the company being purchased tends to perform well leading up to the acquisition. So they will typically short the purchaser and so sell the sell the stock of the purchaser and buy the stock of the seller, if that makes sense. And yes. therefore try to get arbitrage that common discrepancy in performance going forward based on that merger. Now they could also be uh, basically just buying into a company that looks like a strong uh, acquisition in the future in hopes that they will be bought and they will take advantage of that that, that purchase. Um, however, that relationship doesn't always hold. That's why it's not riskless. In fact, uh, the, the merger could completely fall through, in which case those stocks, your, your positions could completely switch swing wildly on you and go the opposite way and you could lose a lot of money so it's arbitrage in a loose form but that that's basically what it is the beauty of strain you know different investments like this is because you're going long and short on uh, different uh, companies the overall performance of the market doesn't have as much of an impact on your overall investment as long as there are mergers going on, you can still benefit from this investment style, even if the market is going down. With that said, mergers, the merger activity, merger and acquisition, M&A activity, mergers and acquisitions tend to peak about the same time the market does, and they tend to go down when the market's crashing, but they, they do still occur, so there are still opportunity to take advantage of that. Questions on that one? I don't think so. Okay. Another, and this is the one that does not follow uh, the, the general pattern of being uh, lower risk per se, and that would be volatility. So actually investing, if you've heard of the VIX, which is a volatility index, so you're, it actually utilizes futures to try to uh, take advantage of the volatility in the markets. So it's, it's not a in, true investment in any logical form it's you're, you're not buying an asset per se you're 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 betting on there being more volatility in the markets in the future okay the nice part about this type of strategy is volatility tends to peak as the market starts to crash so it acts as that that hedge that we're looking for in a bear market with that said as the market is going up oftentimes volatility tends to be low and trail off so over an extended period of time volatility actually tends to have a negative rate of return dang okay yeah so it, it has its uh, fairly substantial disadvantage but it also has one big advantage of being a direct offset to market crashes um, I've heard it described as um, 
Well, I should say the reverse of it. I've heard investment, there are uh, in, investment options out there that basically do the opposite. So they, they essentially sell uh, volatility and they've been described as picking up dimes in front of a steamroller. Because you're basically just getting little bitty premiums all the time for the fact that you're 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 selling you're basically selling options, and so you're getting these little premiums all the time for the fact that the market's not doing anything crazy. But then when the market does do something crazy, you get steamrolled. <laughs> well, I that's I, I <laughs> that's a hard visual yeah. to forget. Actually. <laughs> yeah. So, but again, uh, and that that's not a, that'd be on the opposite end of the volatility investing. That's uh, the opposite of what I'm actually trying to describe here. Um, so it's a very legitimate investment option. It's just not what I'm discussing. Uh, it'd be the opposite end of what I'm discussing at this point. So, right. Yeah. Uh, questions on that? Because I know that's kind of an arbitrary. No, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how to how to say this very well, but I, I feel like if you're going to venture into that realm, that's much more of a, uh, <laughs> call, call, call Sean and, and discuss the, the different possibilities if you want to go down that road rather than <laughs> make the decision based off of this loose description here type, <laughs> type thing. So like, yeah, I, it's I, just, I it's an, it is an odd one. So yeah, cause you're, you're not investing in something really tangible. It's sure. And a lot of these are going to be based on futures, as is the next um, investment that we're talking about. So, but at least those futures have something tangible behind them, whereas volatility doesn't. You're you're, you're really just investing in futures of the market itself, and it's it's kind of strange. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. And honestly, we haven't even discussed futures, um, but we we should put that down as a future future topic. future. Where where yeah. does that go? So I don't forget. Uh, do we have derivatives on there? Derivatives at the end. Okay. So remember this episode. And if you have questions on futures, we will address them eventually. Sorry, we haven't already. Futures um, in will occur in, in the future. Derivatives, <laughs> yes. We'll talk about futures in the future. <laughs> All right, which brings me to the next alternative strategy which is manage futures so manage futures sounds very fancy and very strange realistically speaking it is nothing more than trend following so we talked about trends in our uh, one of our previous episodes about technical analysis that's really what they're doing they're investing in a trend they don't care if the the underlying investment is going up or down they just want to see it going one way or another flat or volatile markets kill managed futures strategies hmm. they also don't care what they invest in as long as there is a futures market for that investment they are happy to take advantage of the trend whether it is up or down so uh, you know futures on precious metals commodities like corn soybeans oil timber 
they're never actually buying the the asset itself. They're just investing in the futures contracts of those investments, and they are uh, counting on the trend, whatever direction it's going, continuing. And Isn't that's that where what, they make uh, their money. What Eddie Murphy was bidding on and trading places. Uh, He's talking about orange juice. I haven't seen that and... since for a long time, but I believe so. Okay. Well, you should go watch that again. <laughs> okay, I should. I should. Yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about futures more in a future episode. Um, but that is basically what they're doing. They are buying into a trend. It doesn't matter what the underlying asset is. It doesn't matter which direction it's going. They just are counting on it continuing to go in that same direction. And you'd be amazed how well they do about getting that right. Now, where managed futures suffer, again, is any type of flat market or volatile market that's just bouncing up and down. That Those tend to be really hard on managed futures strategy uh, strategies. Additionally, when the market corrects, uh, they tend to suffer briefly. So managed futures always tend to miss the bottom of a market and the top of a market. So in a bull run, they'll miss the bottom 10%. In a as it uh, you know reaches its peak and curves back around, they typically don't get out until it starts to curve back around, so they will have lost again the top 10% or ish. It all depends on the strategy that they're employing, but their their goal is to capture that middle 80% of the trend and do it in a big way because a lot of them will uh, utilize leverage in their investment strategies. So the the reason these strategies um, fall under alternatives is, I mean, obviously it's not your traditional investment, but the the nice thing about it from a correlation standpoint is, like I said they don't care which direction the market's going. So you look at, again, 2008, managed futures strategies made, depending on which strategy you were following, made anywhere from 20% to 150%. Jeez. Yeah. They had some big gains in managed futures in 2008. And, you know, obviously that that, that bottom in the shift going going into 2009 hurt them, but they had already made so much money it didn't matter. And then when the market started to recover and it started to trend upward again, they made good money again. So they can make money in both markets. It's just those those uh, shifts in direction that tend to hurt them. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of so, hard to... I mean, any of this is just hard to manage, predict. I'd, I, I don't know, just, just options, I guess. Right. <laughs> it's kind right. of... Uh, And speaking of options, the next one I was going to discuss would be covered calls. So that is options are another derivative. Uh, Calls are a type of option. In this case, I'm talking about covered calls specifically, which means you are already covered on the call as opposed to a naked call, which is uncovered. And we'll talk about that more in the future. But basically what that means is you already own a stock. So you own the underlying investment and then you sell calls to other people. So you're selling other people the option to buy the stock that you own. This, you're, you're still ultimately investing in a traditional asset class, but you're adding an alternative strategy on top of it. And what that does is it does 
limit some of your upside potential, but it also bolsters your rate of return both in bull and bear markets to a certain degree because you're receiving a premium for all of those calls that you're selling. Your, your hope ultimately is that those calls just expire worthless and you just get to keep the premium and keep holding on to your investment. But depending on how the call strategy is structured, typically speaking, even if the, the call does get exercised, you're probably selling the underlying asset at a profit plus you took in the premium on top of it. So it, it helps mitigate downside risk and provide a more consistent re return, almost kind of like a dividend, but not as structured as a dividend. Um, so it, it helps smooth, again, it helps smooth out the ride. And that's why I put it more in that uh, alternative to fixed income. So alternative strategies. Right, alternative strategy within a traditional Strategy. Exactly. Right. Exit. Yep. You got it. Gotcha. And there are different versions of that you can that you can employ, but that that tends to be viewed as the safest uh, methodology for for doing so because it is covered. And then right. the last alternative strategy that I was really going to uh, delve into would be convertible arbitrage. And so again, this would be um, more traditional investments, but with a alternative strategy overlay. So there are types of bonds out there that you can buy that instead of being a traditional bond, it is a convertible bond. And what that means is you can actually convert the bond into the stock of the underlying company. These bonds, convertible bonds, tend to pay lower dividends than your the, the company's normal sh share of bonds. And that's because they've given you that option of converting to stock, but that option is also giving you something of a, a a benefit in that a you're not completely tied to the performance of the underlying stock. You you still have that bond, you still have that that fixed payment and that fixed asset value at the end, provided the company doesn't go bankrupt. But you still have that flexibility of going, oh yeah, the stock's doing really well. I'll convert and take my profits on the, the stock because the, the conversion rate is typically fixed. Okay, yeah. Now with convertible arbitrage, they, they throw in an additional twist where they might, um, you know, short the, they, they might buy the convertible bond but then short the stock and they, they take, uh, it's an arbitrage play where they're taking profits off of one and using the other as a to offset kind of risk to a certain degree. It's it's a strange strategy that uh, doesn't that just kind of wind up leveling out in the process? Oftentimes, yes. It it, it tends to be a very low rate of return play. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's considered a. The only place they've really been able to classify it is market neutral, which is questionable. But um, the, the nice part about it is it has very low correlation to your traditional investments. Um, and by low, I don't mean really like way negative. It's just like right around zero. So it has no correlation to traditional assets, either stocks or bonds. Um, and it still provides a slight rate of return over the, <clears throat> excuse me, over the long term. 
and that rate of return does tend to be in line with uh, bonds. Hmm. Okay. So just sounds like a complicated way to not do a bond. Kind of, yeah. But you're also taking some of the risk off the table. Sure. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. That was the extent of what I wanted to cover. Like I said, there are other alternative assets, other alternative strategies, but this gives you a, a taste at least of some of what's out there and why why you might, might want to consider them. And we sure. briefly touched on why most people are not invested in them, but we can certainly discuss that more in the future. But it, it has to do with both uh, awareness and uh, large companies, uh, larger investment companies that you might be investing with that uh, just don't want to take on the the internal risk associated with it, uh, associated with being sued, basically. Yeah, <laughs> that, that makes sense. Well, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's important, especially because you uh, you personally get involved in it more commonly than than others do. I figure that's at least noteworthy to make sure that you're you're taking time to learn more about it. Maybe it's maybe it's time to have more than ten percent involved in there. Right. I think that's a good point. Okay. What what, what else we got? Do we do we we got that? We got that's all, alternative all, investments in a in a nutshell. In a in a nutshell. In a pretty little nutshell. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Well, then I guess I guess we should magically wrap this up. Uh, thank you again for joining us here on the Truth About Investing Back to Basics. Uh, next time, we're it's it says it says I'm being interviewed, is uh, is what is listed on here. Oh, are we talking about your real estate investments? My, speaking of alternative somewhere? investments talking about real estate investments from from a newbie from a novice side yeah so it'll we'll we'll roll over from alternative investments and just keep rolling on with it and uh i i have no idea what this is going to look like but hey you know i'm not the one interviewing me so we'll we'll find out (laughs) (laughs) sean uh but yeah uh, otherwise, come up you. with some good questions. We'll stump Chris. <laughs> yes, it'll be a five-minute episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you again for coming to join us, and thank you for taking the time to want to learn how to better yourself uh, here on the Truth About Investing Back to Basics podcast. My name is Chris Holling, and I'm Sean Cooper, and we will catch you next time. Podcast disclaimer, disclaimer. The disclaimer following this disclaimer is the disclaimer that is required for this podcast to be up and running and fully functioning and moving forward. This is going to be the same disclaimer that you will hear in each one of our episodes. We hope you enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it. All content on this podcast and accompanying transcript is for information purposes only. Opinions expressed herein by Sean Cooper are solely those of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, unless otherwise specifically cited. Chris Halling is not affiliated with Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, nor do the views expressed by Chris Halling represent the views of Fit Financial Consulting, LLC. This podcast is intended to be used in its entirety. Any other use beyond its author's intent, distribution, or copying of the contents of this podcast is strictly 
strictly prohibited. Nothing in this podcast is intended as legal accounting or tax advice and is for informational purposes only. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. This podcast may reference links to websites for the convenience of our users. Our firm has no control over the accuracy or content of these other websites. Advisory services are offered through Fit Financial Consulting, LLC, an investment advisor firm registered in the states of Washington and Colorado. The presence of this podcast on the internet shall not be directly or indirectly interpreted as a solicitation of investment advisory services to persons of another jurisdiction unless otherwise permitted by statute. Follow-up or individualized responses to consumers in a particular state by our firm in the rendering of personalized investment advice for compensation shall not be made without our first complying with jurisdiction requirements or pursuant an applicable state exemption. For information concerning the status or disciplinary history of a broker-dealer, investment advisor, or their representatives, the consumer should contact their state securities administrator. But there's there's only a... a I guess one more question that pairs along with that is, do you know what a pirate's favorite letter is? R. Oh, you'd think it'd be R, but it's actually the C. Oh, fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, proceed. I got that in my system. That's good. That's good. We needed a dad joke somewhere in there. (laughs)